Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm very, very happy today because I am sitting across from Chris D'Elia, who I've known for not a long, long time, but I've known him in passing and then more regularly on the show, Whitney. And before I get started on Chris, I just wanted to thank you all again for everything you've done to make this show wonderful in terms of what I've been doing in my spare time and as I told Chris on Sundays, but also the fact that you guys have rallied around it and you think it's something special and that it means something and that it's inspirational and that's that's all I ever want. Here in Montreal, where the Just for Laughs Festival is, it's I don't know how to explain it because normally, as I've shared before, a lot of people told me not to do this podcast for many, many reasons. And all I ever wanted to do, as I've shared, is be able to share something that I enjoy, which is sitting down with an an executive or a studio president or a head of an agency or a great comedian who's grown up in the business and is an executive producer on shows and also an actor and creator and and know that after I have a conversation let's say with Chris when I've had them and we have these very bizarre uh, conversations sometimes how my metaphors and things that you have to figure out afterwards but I always say like it's so amazing like that if I went to a meeting let's say with Chris Albrecht and I left and I got in my car I would always say to myself "I I can't believe that I was the only one to hear 
what that person had to say. And now, you know, I get to share these conversations with you about these people's humble beginnings and how they got to where they are now and where they're going in the future. So, as you know, I always sit across my guest and I sort of uh, think about something that comes to me. I never know what I'm going to say. And I think when I look at Chris, I've always been fascinated by him because he's a very paradoxical kind of figure to me. And maybe it's only me because he's always been one of those guys to me that danced between the darkness and the light. And so there's times when I've been with Chris where you can feel the light. You can just feel like everything about him is clear and everything about him is open. And he's like, not to get spiritual, but he's like an open vessel. And he's just such a powerful, positive presence. Walks in the room and, and approachable and huggable. And, and then there's other times where I'm around him and I see the business and how his mind is working and how the industry can sometimes be all-consuming and takes over a person's mind. And when it takes over their mind, then their eyes get a certain way and then their expression get a certain way. They don't know it because they're not looking in a mirror, but they're not necessarily the most approachable. They're not necessarily the light. They're somebody who, like, walks in the room and you're like, okay. It's like they have the look on them, like, don't fuck with me, I'm on medication. Because when you're hanging around a show or you're working on a show or you're producing a show, the thing about shows or movies is when you're around somebody, you get to see every side of them. You don't just see the side that you normally see in the less stressful times. You get to see the sides of people in the stressful times. And one of the things that I always impressed me about Chris is that he was the kind of guy that even though I could feel these different energies at play, I don't necessarily believe that most people could see what I was seeing. That doesn't mean that I'm some guy who's like has this instinctual thing. It just means that this is what I saw. And the most amazing thing I want to share with all of you that's a great metaphor for this business is Chris is the kind of person who you get the feeling literally there is nothing that's going to stop him from getting where he needs to be and where he wants to do and garnering the kind of respect as a stand-up comic, as an actor, that he's going for. And I want to share something with you that I don't even think I've really shared with Chris, and it's my opinion based on also what I saw and I observed. And I was fortunate enough to work with Whitney Cummings, who is probably one of the hardest working human beings in the entertainment field that I've ever worked with in my entire life. Whitney Cummings is the kind of person that it would not surprise you if she was texting you from a shower with a phone inside a Ziploc bag. That's the kind of person she is and was back then, always working, always fighting, always trying to get to the next level never taking no for an answer. Yes, getting kicked, knocked down, but always getting up. And I thought to myself, it's very rare to see somebody who works that hard. And then you run into the person during the casting process that Whitney wrote the role for, the inspired her for, of the lead <laughs> in the show Whitney, her love interest. 
which was Chris D'Elia. And all through the meetings and the process, and I don't know how much Chris knows about this, and I don't know how much anybody knows about this, but I was inside the sausage factory. And what I saw was Whitney Cummings spit blood for Chris D'Elia. Whitney Cummings, every meeting, this is who I wrote this for, this is who I want, this is who's going to do it. But when you're dealing with network television, what you're dealing with is people who write a check. And they don't just write a check for $1,000 or $100,000. They're writing checks for millions of dollars. And there's only so many slots on a network dial. And when you're doing pilots, you only give a certain number of series to unknown people. And the most unknown people there are, the least you really want to take what they have to say versus what the executives you paid to tell you what to do and say. But Whitney was relentless in her feeling that Chris was the guy for the show. And in the casting process that I was privy and I was fortunate enough to be in, as I'll share with Chris, and he could possibly jump over the table here and strangle me, throughout the casting process, and I think he'll agree with me, the hard work that he was putting in and the, and the effort and everything he was to prepare, when he went in the room, I think even he would admit the times before the final test, not 100% of what he felt that he could deliver. He was very, very good. But in our business, as he knows, very, very good doesn't always get you the gig. And I wondered after the last test with the studio and how it works is you go through these casting director auditions, then producer auditions, then you do a test deal if they want you with a few other people, and you test the studio that represents the actual project and is deficiting it, and then your final test is with the network, with the network president and the studio. And so the final audition that he did was with the studio. He did a very good job. I'd say B plus, A minus, he would say. But in order to guarantee you're going to get the job, you have to be 100. You have to be A plus. And I was thinking to myself, and I remember talking to Whitney in the hallway, is there a way that with your relationship and how it is, you guys can figure out to make the adjustments to do whatever it takes to get this guy to be exactly what we know and you know a thousand percent he can be and why you've been betting on him and why you've been pushing him. She's like, yes, I'm, I'm confident this is my guy. And, and there were other people that the network and studio had there that they wanted just as much as Chris. There was no clear-cut favorite. And I was there in that room for the final test with all the producers and all the studio executives and all the network executives and the president of NBC, the incoming president of NBC. This is his first ride, Bob Greenblatt. And the auditions are taking place for the women. And what happens in one of these tests, and again, many of you might not know this, many of you do know this, you literally, the person does their audition, 
the lines are being fed to them, even if they're being fed to them by Whitney. They're not being fed like regular acting. It's like they're reading off a piece of paper. It's like literally you, you're being given nothing, even though they're trying to give you as much as possible. So you got to do everything in your power to pretend you're on a set acting. And Chris comes in the room after all these actors and actresses have come in, and he blew the roof off the room. It was like a plane taking off throughout the whole casting process. And at the very end, it was like he got to his highest destination. And I'll never forget all the people tested. And in these rooms, it's this incredible feeling where it's like the old E.F. Hutton commercials where everybody turns around to the network president and looks at what he's going to say and hopes that he's going to say, Chris D'Elia is my man. And everybody turned around, and I'll never forget what Bob Greenblatt said. He said, I don't see how there's any other choice here. It's obviously Chris D'Elia. He's original, he's unique, he's special, and that's our guy. And I get chills when I think about that moment. I get very emotional because when you're a young comedian and a creator and you grow up in a family in entertainment, one of your goals is to make your mark. And even though he'd done some episodes of Glory Days, he knew that this was the kind of show where he could show his chops, he could show his intellect, his physicality, his emotion, and everything. And along the way, through the ups and downs of the casting process, even though he had somebody who believed in him, he knew that the people writing the checks didn't care. It meant something, but he knew he had to deliver. And when the money was on the line and everything was at stake, he put it all together and he was completely undeniable. And so for me, what I want to share with you is this, in whatever profession you're in, even in the beginning of your profession, you might not be where you want to be, or as an actor or a comedian, you might not be where you want to be. But if you work hard every night and every day on your craft, and you do the right things, and you're a nice person, and you treat people with respect, and you create great relationships with people who can come to power, and then when all the money's on the line, you give the greatest performance of your life it will change your world forever like it changed crystalia's here we go in three two we ain't one at a time in here we're mass communicating this show will have laughter i got everybody pregnant with barry cats and semen infections caused by jacuzzi water i'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking okay here we go is there anything else i should know you're on what now i'm on the air People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. 
It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am pumped here in Montreal with Chris D'Elia. This is fantastic. We're going to have a great time. This is going to be very inspirational. Uh, I've gotten to interview a, a lot of comedians up here who produce. We're in the business uh, in many different ways, and I like to do that every once in a while. And I'm sorry it took so long to uh, have this interview with Chris. So I will give him the proper introduction. Chris Lee is a stand-up comedian, writer, and actor born in New Jersey. And his family relocated to Los Angeles when he was 12 years old. And he began acting in high school, including guest parts that he landed later on in Chicago Hope, Boston Legal, and Monk. He was accepted to New York University but dropped out to pursue comedy writing and at 25 began his stand-up career. In just a few short years, D'Elia was on television performing his comedy, appearing in Comedy Central's Live at Gotham, and Comedy Central Presents after that. His easygoing demeanor and camera and acting chops landed him a role on TBS's college comedy, Glory Days, and a starring part on NBC's sitcom, Whitney, opposite Whitney Cummings. Since 2014, D'Elia has been the lead in the multi-camera NBC sitcom Undateable, which has just been picked up for a third season, executive produced by Bill Lawrence, who did Scrubs. They've also done a number of groundbreaking episodes that are live, and they're going to be doing more of those as well. Chris continues to perform stand-up all over the world, and he appeared in the 2014 Oddball Comedy Tour, and if you've never seen that, buy a ticket and on the Comedy Central roast of Justin Bieber, who cites D'Elia as his favorite comedian. The third season of Undateable, consisting entirely of live episodes, premieres on NBC October 9th, and you can see his phenomenal, phenomenal hour special and see the fruits of what it's like to go up every night in L.A. and work hard called incorrigible now streaming on netflix please welcome a man that i really respect tremendously chris D'Elia. thanks man it's good to be here it's nice we finally get to do this i know it's you know? uh well i know you get asked to do so many of these i things. know i know but i always wanted to do yours it's uh i mean just even being in the lobby in here in montreal it's like you, you gotta eventually say no but uh but yeah there's a lot of <laughs> interviews and a lot of podcasts you can do i think this is the only podcast i'm doing though so 
Well, that means a lot to me. Yeah, man. I wanted I, to do it. I bet you were asked to do a lot of them. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah. No, this is good because you said a lot of nice things about me right away. So <laughs> thank you for that, by the way. That's really, that was really sweet. Well, ordinarily, I don't go this early at it, but I think it's really important for our audience to know how your life started and the trajectory of how you went through the beginnings, what kind of family environment it was and what was the first inspiration that happened to you that made you want to be in this business i remember uh i remember one story and then my dad remembers another story uh the one that will you tell us both yeah the one that i remember was in high school i was um it was after a dance that you know the guys and girls went to and we wound up back at my buddy's place john may as one of one of my best friends uh, in high school still is but uh um and uh you know they knew me as like the the clown or whatever the class clown and and they basically just said uh chris go the uh the room it was we were in a bedroom but there was like 15 or 16 of us i guess it was an even number of guys and girls but uh and they were like go go make us laugh and I was like, okay, I was just in a good mood after the dance. And uh, How old were you? I, I must have been 16, 15, 15 or 16. And uh, I went on the bed and I just made people laugh. I don't even really remember what I was doing, but uh, it, it was kind of my first version of doing stand-up, you know? Um, and that was when I realized, like, oh, I... I, I I would like to do stand-up. I mean, I always wanted to do stand-up, but to me, that was like the first taste of it, you know? Even though they were just my friends and I was kind of just messing around and having fun with my friends, it still felt like I was on a stage because I was standing on the bed and uh, and all that. But uh, my dad tells a story that I don't remember because I was too young um, where um, he was watching a Jerry Lewis movie and... Jerry Lewis was being very Jerry Lewis as he would be in movies and he was just being very silly and uh, he said I was playing in the other room my dad was watching the Jerry Lewis movie and I came into the TV room and I looked at the show the the movie whatever it was that Jerry Lewis was in and I was watching Jerry Lewis be really silly and and um, he said I was, he was watching me watch it and then he said after a few moments of watching it I said uh Hey, Dad, who's that guy? And my dad said, oh, that's Jerry Lewis. And I said, does he just do that for his job? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, like, that's what he does, uh, and he makes money at it? (laughs) And my dad said, yeah, as a matter of fact, he makes a lot of money doing that. And And then my dad said, I went like this, huh. And then walked out of the room and he said that that moment was the moment I decided I wanted to be in the entertainment business that just that you could do that for a living what other people besides Jerry Lewis in your subliminal consciousness and the ones that you actually remember were influences on you um you know the ones that I do remember were Eddie Murphy and Jim Carrey uh I love I and you know Robin Williams I love like silly I always loved being just silly and as a kid you know as a young kid watching some of those jerry lewis movies that my dad watched those were a little old for me but 
but my dad would watch those and show me like the Dean Martin stuff and all those guys. And I just, I just loved, I loved that style of humor. And then as I got older, you know, I became a little bit more mature, a little bit. But uh, I still appreciate this the silliness. That's why Eddie Murphy and Jim Carrey were always guys that like I always kind of like, you know, growing up would watch and just kind of. Now, what's fascinating to be about you saying that, and if you'll uh, mind me sort of going a little toe to toe with you here, your comedy now is, I think that even if there was anybody in the world that didn't like you, which I've never found anybody who doesn't. I can find them. No one's going to watch that special and say, eh, you know, that bit was, you know, too silly. Oh. That bit was too hacky. That, yeah. That, you know, you're doing a kind of comedy now that is highly, highly evolved from the kind of comedy that I remember you doing when I first started yeah. seeing you. And so, and Jim Carrey, he was in a, for those of you who know Jim Carrey as a comedian, most of his bits were impressions. Right, and right, right, He used right. to close with on Golden Pond with Henry right. Fonda and Jane Fonda. <laughs> right, 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 right. And then he'd do the impression of the shaking head and he'd get a standing <laughs> yeah, ovation. Yeah. And, of course, Eddie Murphy would open up one of his famous specials, opens up with Ralph Cramden right, getting right, uh, right. banged in the ass yeah, by yeah. Norton. Yeah. And so the thing <laughs> is, is that your comedy in the beginning wasn't i think similar to that kind of comedy in my mind and now the transformation that you made not to say your comedy wasn't great when you were starting but it was more silly and now it's like it's like almost that expression this isn't your father's oldsmobile oh, yeah. your stand-up is not the way it used to be what created this transformation even in the last i would say the last four years even you if there was a true serum in your veins, would say, if I watch my stand-up now versus four years ago, I'm a totally different person. What happened? Well, I th yeah, I I do feel like that. Um, you, I mean, look, I've I've seen comedians that I respect have a really long career and guys that just keep getting better, and I've seen the opposite, guys that just kind of stay in one place, and you get older and you other things become important to you and uh my first special i think was was silly and i i think it's funny i like it i still like it um i'm not one of those guys that's like Ugh, i hate that i did that i but um my second special was a little less you know i was trying to be a little bit more i think it's okay to start uh with with jokes and silliness and and uh and and but but real people who end up liking you and you know to be honest actually something that somebody said once one of my close friends said once to me uh really kind of changed my attitude about that and i think it, it helped me really uh it helped me a lot in, in my stand-up career my buddy will sasso who uh, you know tremendous yeah he's great but uh he came to that to, to one of my tapings and he was talking to me as my friend and he was like hey man that bit you do about whatever it was, is really funny, but it's extra funny to me because I know you. And I thought, oh, I want, I said, uh, you know, it made me laugh that he said that. And then I thought, oh, I, I want it to be extra funny to everybody, you know? So I thought, how do I get people who don't know me, quote unquote fans or people that come see me, how do I get them to know me like Will knows me, you know? So I thought, I have to really let them know who I am. 
And so I think that once I started doing that and not, you know, and, and, and look, and, and the comedians that I look up to now, like Bill Burr or whoever, you really know who that guy is, you know, uh, on stage. And, and, and the funny then comes from there. And I think that if I start with an idea that I feel as me and then make that funny, people will think that that's extra funny because they're like, oh, that's Chris. You know, to whereas, you know, to get the people to know me as my friends know me, I think is the is the is the goal that I've been doing, the the goal that I've been kind of like pursuing now, and I think that that's when my my material or whatever you want to call it became more um, about, you know, less about being silly and more about you know I'm always going to be silly. I mean that's just I love it and it'll it'll come out eventually, you know. So uh so to 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 do it like that though, uh I guess to get on a more personal level, I I I guess. Um that was when I started to do that. And then when it became that way. Take us through your process as a stand-up comedian. Take us through from where the first thought of an idea comes to you and how does it go from your brain to documented somewhere to on stage to in a special it mostly will go like i'll be i I really like to like go to like a diner with like a bunch of friends and that's pretty much where pretty much where a lot of my material comes from um, where I'll just be like making fun of people or like each other, and then I'll, there's somebody will be like, "You should say that on stage," or I'll say something to somebody I know in passing, and it'll make them laugh, and the, and I'm like, "Oh, that's actually a, an interesting idea." Then I'll try it. You know, I'll, I'll never physically write it down. To me, it becomes less fun when you do it that way. Um, just just for me. But then I'll bring it on stage, and then if I can get somewhat of an amusement out of it for myself and the the crowd. Uh, secondary, then I'll be like, okay, that 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 could be something I, I work with, and then I'll just basically do it and do it and keep doing it. I mean, I'll do it three, four times a night sometimes, and then if it works, I'll just add it to a a, a chunk in my act. But I always try to like think about it as a whole, right? So um, I'll always be like, how can I make that, you know, into a very uh, it's a loose theme, but in in, in my hour, but like. Uh, to add it to that chunk. And if it doesn't fit in that chunk, then I'll be like, oh, I'll keep that. Maybe I'll come back later at some some point and then I can add it to something else. And I've done that. You know, I, I had a bit five years ago that, that I stopped doing five years ago that finally fits into this new stuff. So I'm like, oh, I'll do that bit, you know? But I don't ever really throw stuff out unless I just, I'm like, what am I doing? But uh, I'll just kind of like remember it. And I feel like if it's good, I'll remember it, you know? So what you're saying is, Every bit that you've ever written in your life is only documented in your brain and on the tape and video that it was performed on. So all these bits that you remember from the past, they're all in your head. There's nothing written down. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Is it? Yeah, I don't know. I... I, uh... Yeah, I, I suppose I'll if I don't remember it, uh, or I, it's not good, you know. I, I don't know because if I think, oh, that was great. What I I'll, actually a lot of times what I'll do now is if I say something on stage, I'll, I'll tell the audience. I'll be like, oh, somebody tweet me that. I don't want to forget that. 
and that's worked a lot like after the show i'll check and they'll be like remember the part about the pants or whatever and uh i'll be like oh yeah yeah but uh yeah i don't i don't write i don't i don't write stuff down honestly even when even when tv shows or whatever the shooting they'll be like hey what we need your transcript i'll just try to get out of it i'll be like i don't want to write it down i'll just be like i'll be it'll be fine just and i don't do it and i end up you know i end up getting away with it i don't know how that happened i just don't want to do i don't want to do it there was some tv show that was like we want you to do the show but you need a transcript and i just i said i just i don't want to do it like i'll just do and they said no and i was like okay well then forget it it's just not fun it's not fun like that to me it's so much more fun to just let me be the comedian and then do it and then if i fuck up it's like i'll make it'll be fun more fun you know i don't know like I did one of these tapings uh, last night at uh, Just for Laughs, and there was like a huge technical issue, and we just kind of like, it just, I just rolled with it. I was hosting, and I just made fun of it, and I was like, I hope they're getting this, and they use this, whatever. Yeah, I don't write stuff down, man. I, I really don't. I, I really don't. It it it's less out of me thinking, uh, you know. I mean, I think you you say you say that's amazing, but to me, it, it probably has to do with laziness and just it's less fun. Lazy. I mean, I'm not lazy. I do go up every night and I work very hard, but just I can't be focused just sitting at a computer like that unless I'm really writing like a script or something like that. Yeah. You mentioned how social networking and Twitter yeah. helps you with your craft. Tell me how social networking and Twitter has hurt your stand up and has damaged certain things that you want to do. Yeah, directly it's affected it. Because, I mean, it's just crazy how immediate now the world we live in and how invasive it is. Um, I mean, people will just record my whole set and, uh, and then upload it to YouTube and or parts and stuff. And they'll send it to me, be like, look what I did for you. Like, it's up on YouTube now. And that, like people don't understand that that's literally stealing you know and they don't understand that it it literally costs me money like to because i i need material to not be seen until i shoot it because networks or whoever's going to pay you to shoot this content for them they want original stuff you know and if stuff is out on the internet uh it should it, it has to be stuff that the artist has allowed uh also developing material sometimes as comedians you say things that sound tricky and it's hard to get the laugh and 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 it could be taken out of context or in a certain little bit just completely wrong and then all, all of a sudden this guy's a bad guy for saying this but you're joking you're on stage and you're joking so social media has affected uh me and m many other comedians that way uh uh but um uh, also, it was very important for me to keep going on stage and keep doing this and keep doing stand-up because I really wanted people to know, first and foremost, that I was a comedian and not a guy from a guy that got big on Instagram that then was doing stand-up. You know, pe there are people that just don't know. And they'll say, oh, that's the guy from Instagram or whatever. Or, yeah, oh, yeah, I saw you on the Vine or something. But uh, that, to me, social media is, is, is just is nothing except for an extension of me being on stage because that's where I, I start from, you know? So, um, 
it's also different mediums and different outlets. Like when I go on stage, I'm, I try and connect with people differently than I do on social media. But you know, some people like my stand up that, 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 that don't like my Instagram. Some people like my Instagram and don't like my stand up or whatever it is, you know, it's like, it's all different. And, uh, but, but I'm just, I just want people to know me and my, my, my content, I guess, as a stand up. Does it surprise you that the comedy clubs don't have a big frame sign that as people walk in and on every yeah. table that says, look, these are artists, this is their craft, please don't record, please don't tweet out material. Yeah. It directly affects the comedians and their livelihood, yeah. and thank you. Why don't they do that? Uh, I mean, some clubs do have little signs, but yeah, they don't, they don't, they usually don't make them very prevalent to the eye, but... Um, there needs to be something done, and I think eventually maybe there will be, but like you, you can't take people's phones away as they go in the venue. I mean, that's just that's invasive in itself, but you, there needs to be something. Uh, I'm not sure those signs would really matter that much as people drink and, you know. If I told you that Don Rickles played here last year. Yeah, I saw him. Okay. If you got your ticket and on the ticket it said your cell phone will be taken at code check and you'll get a tag, there will be no cell phones in the venue and you can choose whether you can come or not or give your ticket up, would you give your cell phone up? I that? would, yeah. I would, yeah. Wouldn't most people? I think so, yeah. But, well, look, I don't think it would affect Don Rickles too much, but I think with my crowd, I think it, I think it would hurt sales a little bit, you know? Um, but... Maybe it's worth it, man. I have a, a crazy suggestion that I want to make, and I don't even know why I'm making it to you. I know you're not working as many comedy clubs as you are theaters, but you do work the big comedy clubs. Here's a great idea. Tell me if this will work, and you can be the first comic to ever test it out. Okay? You take one of your shows, you cut a deal with the club, and you add one show... And that one show is a special price, and there's a special meet and greet or whatever with you, but it's a no cell phone show. There is a complete thing at the door where they give their cell phone to, you to a check. Right. You don't get in unless you give your right. cell phone at the check right. and see how that would work for one show. Yeah, that might, that might be cool, yeah. I think that you could change the face of how these that, things go. That might be go. a good idea, yeah. And you could be the first one that ever did it. See if it still sells. <laughs> Yeah. And I guarantee that'll be your first show to sell out because you'll offer them something right, right, special right, right, right. to do it. You'll offer them a special, right. maybe a special thing that only those people at that show yeah. can get and no one else can buy it anywhere. That's not a bad idea. And I bet you could change the way comedians do things. That's not a bad idea. All right. I want to continue going way back. So you, okay. you find out you're funny. And how do you first get to the stand-up stage? Uh, what happens? Or acting or anything. Yeah, well, I started acting. Look, I as a kid, I was like, oh, okay, stand-up is what I want to do. That's the goal. But it's so hard, and it looks like such a scary and daunting process. So I'm just going to try and do um, – I'm going to try and do uh, acting and writing. And so in high school, I did a few – I think I did one or two shows on Chicago Hope. So how did you get the gig as a high school person? Like, did you have an agent? I had or an agent that it was in LA. I went to high school pretty much in LA, and there was a guy that uh, 
wanted to represent me or something like that. It was so long ago, I can't remember. And uh, I met with an agency, and then they kind of sent me out on a few things. Uh, but Chicago Hope was an audition. My dad was working on that show. Now, and, just so people know, yeah. because you haven't mentioned it oh, yet. Oh, yeah, my dad's a director and a producer. A tremendous director and producer and one of the most well-respected out there. Oh, it's, yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a good guy. He, he, he is respected, and he's, he's very cool. And, um, and, you know, back then he was, it was 96, and so he was working on Chicago Hope, and he was like, hey, there's this one part. Um, I can't remember how it went down, but I went in and I, I auditioned for it and then got it and then do you see a little similarity here besides uh, another person who loved you very much and Whitney who yeah who wanted you to do something and your yeah. dad and there was a little bit of nepotism with Whitney there was a nepotism yeah, 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 with your yeah, dad yeah. of course yeah see what's odd is your career starts off yeah your first role starts off where somebody believing in you but they can't give you the role you have yeah, to go you in and get it yourself I mean you know uh, I was 16, and and uh, you know, I, I don't know how you break in the business if you don't know somebody. You got you got to have somebody in your corner. So uh, so yeah, so I got that part, and and then then I did an uh, another show called Get Real or something, a little part, and another little part on another show, and then I just kind of went to college for a year, um, and I, I and then I dropped out. And as I was in college, I wrote this script, um, and I wrote this script, and I, I was like, I want to drop out of college, and my parents were like, no. And I was like, but I'm not going to go. I hate it. And so I flew back home, and I gave this script to my agents, and they really liked it, and, and, and we started shopping it around, and uh, I ended up selling it uh to a company it was like a uh i had not seen it at that point but it was like the movie diner where it was like a coming of age kind of 20 something i think 20 something year old kids and um the original diner or a different diner the diner with mickey rourke and yeah. paul Reiser. and yeah that one yeah and uh and it was weird too because i had never seen diner and kevin bacon's in it but in my in the script i wrote uh one of the characters was like obsessed with Kevin Bacon and I saw a diner. I was like, that's so weird. It looks like I saw a diner and then would like, I, I, this was like an ode to that kind of in a way. Do you know? You know what else is weird? What? You said the place where you create the most of your stuff is where? Oh, in a diner. Yeah. 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 It's true. I do like that atmosphere. I love that atmosphere. I don't know. There's something creative about it to me in a way. It's like people are there doing their own thing, but you're still, it, it, it's it's kind of it's more relaxed than a restaurant you know what i mean you don't have to be so formal but you shoot the shit and stuff it feels like that's the birth of a lot of things creatively for me and so you book one of the first acting jobs yeah. that you go out for <laughs> you write your first script you ever write yeah, that did happen. you sell it yeah um and then what happened was you know it was at this company called i can't remember what the company was called atlantic streamline that's what it was called at the time and then uh about a year went by and the rights expired. They didn't get it produced, you know? Uh, and then, and then like really soon after trigger street brought, bought it, which was Kevin Spacey's company. And we tried to get it made. And then that didn't happen. And then I was, you know, 22 at the time or 22. Yeah. 22, 23. And I was like, you know what? 
uh, I, I, I need to get my stuff seen. Like, I don't care about selling a script if it's not going to be made. Like, I, I, so that was the, that was the impetus of me uh, getting on stage because I was like, I just want people to fucking pay attention to me. So the first time you go on stage, the first time I went on stage, I was twenty three at the Haha ha Cafe. I don't remember what I talked about. That's in North Hollywood in California. But I don't remember what I talked about, but I went on and I, I, I it was good. And then two, you know, it, or it was fine. And for a first timer. And then two years later, I went back on stage for really the real first time. And I was 25. And that then I went on stage. It was January 2nd, 2006. January 2nd, 2006. And that was, I was like, I'm going to do stand up once a week. That's will be my New Year's resolution because I got to do this. And then I went on January 2nd, and then I went on January 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th. I just kept, I, I, I went. And now the longest I've been in my life without going on stage since then is seven days. Think about that, everybody. Yeah. Think about that kind of work ethic. Now, there's something about you that's kind of like an anomaly, that you're breaking a trend. You could possibly break a trend. There's only one answer to this question. I always say that... You have to be doing stand-up 10 years to get, as an actor, a show going that gets syndicated. (laughs) There isn't any comedian I know that went to syndication. When I say syndication, normally the magic number was 100. Now it's a little less. but, But I don't know of any comedian that actually had a show go to syndication that wasn't doing comedy at least 10 years. Now, the Wayans brothers, uh, some people, uh, you know, some people considered uh, uh, them stand-ups from the beginning or whatever, but they were doing different things. They're the only two that I know of that, that got on and went to syndication. Now, yeah. if, I don't want to jinx anything, but if undateable goes the way it's going, yeah. you'll be the first person or one of the first people to ever do that. Why do you think it's so hard for a comedian to get a show to go the distance? Um, it's just hard in general, man. I think for comedians, it's, it's, it, a lot of people look to comedians for content. So the business will be like, look to comedians for content because they already have something kind of built in there. And I don't mean a fan base. I just mean like, they know who a guy is. If you go see comedy, this is one of the reasons why I, 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 I was like, fuck it, I got to do stand-up. At least the, in in the business, it felt like, okay, now I know who I am in the business. Like, I'm a comedian. People will be like, okay, that guy's a funny guy. Uh, that He does funny stuff, so we can get him for this comedy that we're doing, you know? It's not just like I'm some actor, like, here I am, and they're like, okay, what do you got? They're like, oh, okay, well, he goes on stage at the comedy store, okay, or whatever. So um, I think that for a comedian, you have that built in already. Whereas, like, okay, like you look at really good specific comedians like Sebastian Meniscalco or whoever, like, oh, you could totally see a show based on by him. Ray Romano. You know, that's why you see, you get it. You get his family talks about his family. He's like, okay, these are all the characters in the thing. Okay, um, and but I think that for that to click and get on the air and for people to really fall in love with those characters or that character, it it needs to kind of like. It can't just be about that. It has to be about the world. And so I think that maybe sometimes uh, that world isn't as well thought out about, uh, uh, it, it isn't as well thought out as, as the actual persona of the comedian. And I think that that's 
why it's hard for some shows to really live past a, a certain number of years. But uh, the good ones like Romano or, you know, Seinfeld, like we all remember all those characters because the world was so, so well thought out, you know. And one of the things about Undateable was a big risk by not only Bill Lawrence, but also by Bob Greenblatt was the fact that normally when you're a stand-up comedian, you want to surround yourself with extraordinary thespians. Yeah. Now, this is not a knock on the cast members in the show because they're all unbelievable and they're all great and everything's going great. But normally, you want to be around, what do they say? You want to play tennis, right. play with people who are better than right, you. Right, right, right. And I don't think any of the cast members yeah. on Undateable are thinking, hey, we're Sean Penn here. We're the next De Niro. Maybe they think that, but at this point <sighs> in time, they're not classically trained Juilliard actors yeah. and actresses. I think one there's is, like, but not the comedians. Yeah, so there's like five comedians yeah. on the show, and it's what's weird is, is that there's every level of comedian on the show from an open micer, yeah. Rick Glassman, who basically got the gig as an open micer, and what an inspirational story to let you know that, you know, go into the room and blow everybody away yeah. when no one's expecting yeah. you to get the job. You know how hard it is for somebody who has a resume that's empty yeah. to it's, book it's, a network gig? It's pretty, you know how good yeah. he had to be in pretty that room? Possible auditioning to get that gig and then you have different levels along the way so it's a fascinating trajectory do you feel added pressure in the beginning when it first started you know i don't have these people like jerry had who right. like are these classically trained actors who can show me the way even yeah. though you've been on television yeah i know i know what you mean yeah was it harder for you or was it like did people look at you as a leader or did you, you i know? don't know i suppose I, I don't really think about that like i just kind of i i I know if I'm having fun, it'll be fine. And, and and if I get along with everyone, if people hate the show, it, it it that's secondary to me, man. I of course I want people to like the show, but I feel like if we're having fun as actors or comedians on set, and you catch that on camera, then it'll translate. You know, I think it did on Whitney. I think it did. On, I think it does on Undateable. You know. And uh, you're lucky to have that atmosphere, really, because there's a lot of sets that are just bonkers, man. And you're lucky to have that atmosphere if you can create it. And I think, you know, look, Whitney was one of my is one of my best friends, and on set she was one of my best friends. And so, and these guys are all now just like some of these guys are my best friends. So, you know, it's like uh, I don't really think about, oh, you know. It, it's an ensemble cast, you know? So it's like live and die by each other, really. I have a theory of why Undateable got the third year and Whitney didn't get the third mm. year. And I want you to tell me if my theory is totally out the window or whatever. What? <laughs> Sometimes you get into a process where you write a script and you put it together and you cast it and you're casting... Like in the NFL draft, you're taking the best player available. And those players have different strengths in how they act. Right. And I felt on Whitney, and I always have felt this from the beginning, that the cast we assembled were extremely strong, a lot of them. But they weren't 
all huggable and lovable. Mm. Even you, in the way your character was written and presented, you were always the guy who was sort of doing the things that yeah. were yeah. not necessarily something you'd want to rally around. Right. And even Whitney, the way she was handling things, it was more of an edgy kind of thing. It was a mainstream show, but there were things that yeah, were Yeah, no, happening. you're right, yeah. And all the characters were not characters you want to run up to and hug. Yeah. It wasn't Arrested Development unlovable and unlovable. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it was a more edgy a place where you didn't feel a warm and fuzzy feeling yeah. from each character. yeah. In Undateable... Yeah, you do feel that way with Undateable characters, yeah. Your character and everybody's character, even the people who are the darkest characters, yeah. sometimes you feel like, I can walk up to that guy and shake yeah, his hand true, or girl. Yeah. And I think that's where the difference lies. And I think for the most part, unless you're doing a show on FX or a show that you know you go to that network because you go there for edgy characters. Yeah, of course, yeah. But you don't go to Rescue Me in FX because you're looking to be warm and fuzzy. You're, yeah, you're on yeah. sex, you to, drugs, and rock and roll. You're not going to be yeah. going there to find the people who are going to make course, you happy. Yeah. No. And so I feel that's the difference in this show. Would you agree or disagree? Yeah, with that? that that is definitely a difference in in Whit in Whitney to uh, Whitney the show to uh, Undateable. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, there are great sitcoms where they're there are so wacky and not huggable. I mean, like Seinfeld was that way. You know, they're just so out there. But yeah, I don't know. I feel like Whitney. We were trying to find our footing uh, uh, first first season, and then and then we kind of we kind of found it. But by then, I feel like it was just uh, I don't want to say too late. It just kind of I don't know. I don't know. I wasn't behind the scenes. I was just kind of an actor on it. But um, well, the thing about a lot of shows that's really again not to go inside too inside, but I, on Whitney. A lot of times people think to themselves, okay, if we change out the showrunner mm -hmm. and oh, make yeah, some changes right. with happen. the writing, yeah. we can fix things right, and right. the ratings will be better and bigger. Yeah. And normally when a show does that, 99% of the time, nothing changes. Right. But the network president has to make the move in that one in a hundred shot because basically those are the odds of a show actually going to yeah, syndication. Right, right. So they have to take the shot. And as I always say, if I had a one in a hundred shot of winning the lottery, I'd play every day. Sure. Yeah. And so you change out the showrunner. They took out the showrunner, which was Betsy right. Thomas, and they brought in a new showrunner, Will Cal Calhoun, who had worked on Friends. Mm -hmm. And I think the cast members felt like it was a different kind of vibe. It was a different kind of thing. He was Will was a great leader, but he was also talent-friendly and accessible, and I totally. think a lot of things that he did with the writers they felt good about. But in the end, maybe the vibe on the set changed, but the ratings never changed. Maybe the storylines changed, yeah. but the ratings didn't change. They added the only huggable and lovable character on the show, the new bartender, Tone right, Bell. Right, right, right. But that wasn't enough to do anything. Uh -huh. And so those changes don't make a difference, even though the cast is saying, hey, I like the episodes better. Right. I like the story better. But then you realize, well, why aren't people coming yeah. any more than they were before? Yeah. And there's no reason why, because there's 100 people working on a show, including the actors who have their thoughts. And they're all watching it, and they're all loving it and feeling good about it. But in the end... 
essentially, as I say, America speaks. Yeah. And they'll tell you what you're doing that they like, and they'll tell you what you're doing that they don't like. And in Undateable, uh, this is another anomaly. With the way the networks are going, God knows how long there will be networks, but they're doing all these episodes live. Yeah. Well, you probably ask yourself, why are they doing these episodes live? Because they know they're getting their asses kicked by yeah. streaming. So yeah. then they have to present these shows like they're a football game or a sporting event. Like, okay, Some well, let's see, give, what, let's see what happens. Yeah. But what's odd is, and Chris will share this with you, they did a bunch of live shows last year, and unbelievably, the ratings didn't change. We did one live show last year. so And uh, why don't you think the ratings changed on the one live I, show? I thought they were a little higher, but maybe they weren't. I don't know. Um, but not significantly. Right. Well... I think that it just has to be kind of a thing that just kind of we, we keep doing, which is why I think we're doing that. I agree with yeah. you. And that's why Bob and his staff are so smart. Yeah. Because even though something might not work right away, he's smart enough yeah. like you are in your stand-up. You just keep going yeah. and keep working it, and you keep doing great work. And people will come. And, and it also has it. to be like, yo, did you hear that show's live? And then somebody else is like, what do you mean? And like, well, they do it live to air. Like, and they're like, oh, really? Yeah, they mess up sometimes. Oh, maybe I'll check it out. Like, there needs to be those conversations over and over again for people to be like, okay, oh, and then see it. And then, because people, you know, people don't, People don't like when stuff is even pro like, even when they promoted Whitney. People, people like to like find the show that they like. You know, they yeah. like to be like, that's my show. They don't like to be like. Oh, I, I, I'm told to watch this. It's not like that anymore, really, you know? So I think that that hurt Whitney a little bit, the show, uh, that people were like, fuck this show already before it even came out. And then, you know, it's hard to win those people over, really. I think there's such a thing as over-promoting. Yeah, yeah, there is. And I think that can really hurt sure. things. Tell me the moment that happened in your career where you said to yourself, I'm not going to work on anything else. I'm not going to do it. This is what I'm doing for a career, and yeah. nothing is going to stop me. I'm doing this all the way. I, I got to say, it. it uh, I never did it. I, I honestly never thought otherwise. Like, I, I, I just assumed I was going to be a, a comedian or an actor. I was just like, that's just what I am, and people are going to let me do that. I, I never had any doubt that that's what I was going to do. I just, I, I just had to, I have to, I don't know. People are like, well, if you weren't a comedian, what would you be? I like really, really, you wouldn't, I, you wouldn't be able to let, get me out of a room. Like I would just be depressed and nothing. Like I just, there's no other job. Maybe I, I like to think I would like try to help people somehow, but I, I probably would just be sad as shit in a hotel room somewhere. Larry Moss, the great acting coach. Yeah. He has this thing that he says that, the great artist, the really great artist with the incredible drive to being so great at what they do, there's normally a hole that's been blown through them in their <laughs> in their life, or I like to call it like a like a loss of innocence where some that first thing or something happens where it just crushes them and it personally and they're almost incapacitated by the the thing that happened to them or if they're not they bury it deep inside mm -hmm. and they always want to fill the hole by the art form 
and they realize after they do whatever they do, then the hole gets opened mm-hmm. again, and then they have to do it again. Mm-hmm. Was there something in you that happened that was really, really, really difficult that was the impetus that you look back and say, I can feel this thing that happened to me. This is what drove me. I don't... I I, I think that... Um, look... People definitely go to humor and comedy because they have pain in their lives and they want to make it better. And I think that that's great. Uh, I didn't have a bad life. Uh, I think that for me, though, be, I, I always in my head was an insecure uh, outsider. You know, I felt like Oh, they're not gonna. They're diff, they're not gonna like me. Or, or how do I make them like me? And like, I just joke, you know. Uh, or uh, I don't fit in in school, so I'll make these people laugh, you know. Or you know, this dinner I got to go to is stupid. I don't want to do it, but I'll make fun of stuff, and at least I'll have fun. <laughs> so in my head, I always felt like an outsider, you know, and. Um, I think that that was, you know, I can't pin down a specific moment, but I've just always kind of felt that way. I used to be like terrified growing up. Like when I was a kid, I was so scared of everything. Like I would be in bed just like shaking. I remember it um, of nothing. I was scared of, of, of nothing. My, my, I remember my dad would be like, why don't you just go to sleep? What are you scared of? And I'd be like, I, I remember saying everything like, and I don't know why there was no moment where I was attacked by birds or some shit where it happened, and uh, like, oh, now I'm terrified. It just I was always that way, man. A crazy, a crazy like overactive imagination where I would they 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 brought me to even a specialist about it. Just fear, just so scared for no reason, nothing. Unless I'm totally forgetting and burying it deep, but no, man. Uh, that wackiness led to this wackiness (laughs) when's the last time you felt fear regarding this profession that's a good question um with the internet man like with the internet people can take stuff out of context and um Interviews you do will get twisted around just for clickbait. And it's uh, it's very... Uh, that's scary, dude. That's real scary. Um, it's real scary. You know, because guys, you know, guys, guys rip people apart, man. And it's just... If they're influential enough, then it's like that's what becomes the hot thing to to it's just weird man that's scary look at bill simmons number one guy in sports and podcasting Mm -hmm. and espn just says yeah see you later buddy the number one guy yeah it's unbelievable it's just yeah you know but look man the other good thing about it is you get your fans you get your fans and you know they'll be with you and uh you know that's cool uh, and, and, and that's why I always just try to keep it fun for myself. You know, you can't, you can't be on top forever, really. So that's an amazing thing you just said. Yeah. 
as a comedian, to me, that would be why you're working so hard to be a great actor, why you're working to be a producer, why you're working to drive things forward, because as a comedian, everybody sees their trajectory. There's only one comedian that I know of in my history of being in this business that has stayed exactly at the same level from the (laughs) moment they did The Tonight Show until now, and they sell out theaters back then and for 30 years. Stephen Wright. Oh, yeah. The only person I know of for 30 years that has stayed, he's like literally, when you talk about the plane taking off, he's flying in the clouds for 30 years. And most comedians, even people like Dice Clay, who sold out Madison Square Garden for 12 years and all these, you settle and you do great, but you settle at a certain level. You rise and you fall and you settle at a certain level. It happens with almost every stand-up that I know. You know, probably one of the exceptions to the rule would be like uh, the late Robin Williams or, right. or, or Chris Rock. But you know something? They do stand-up and they create right, right, and right, they right. write and they produce right. and they put stuff out. And that's what you're doing, and that's what you're going to do. And I feel that about you, and I know that you're going to always work hard to be at a certain level. And even if maybe you lose some fans, what you've done in the last four years is an example for every comedian what you have to do. Yes, Joe Jackson did the album Look Sharp, and it was amazing. And then he did a jazz album afterwards, and people were like, "Uh, we're not buying this. But then he came back and did whatever. And you are always reinventing yourself, recreating. And that's what you do that is always going to take you to the next level. We all know. We all go in the clubs. We all see the guy doing the same material over and over again. You can't do that. You just can't do that. And you can't even imagine why it is. It's because they're afraid to to give up something that they close with that's a great bit that they close with. We all know the comedians who close with this incredible bit that yeah. gets either a standing ovation yeah. or whatever, and every time you see them, they do the same right. thing at the end. Right. And, oh, my fans like it or whatever. Yeah. Well, they'll get new fans. Yeah. What's also really incredible about you for the people out there who don't know is Chris is an amazing navigator, and the politics in L.A. comedy is very, very, very tricky. And... All three clubs, it could be argued that if their owners were in the street and each one of them had a pickup truck, they'd run each other over, over and over and back up over them. They don't like each other. They don't like hearing that the other club is doing well. They don't like hearing that this person's working there. Yet one of the few people in the business that whether he's big or whether he wasn't so big at the time got to work all three clubs all the time. And that's Chris D'Elia. How do you do it? How do you maintain the relationships with all three clubs when some of your friends that you know that are very good friends can't even work at certain places? Um, I don't know. I never really thought about that. I guess I, I, I know it used to be like that in the 80s for sure. You could only play one club. But now I honestly think it's because I, I, I just – I, I – uh, I mean, I know some other guys that do it, but I feel like... Think about it, Chris. How many people could you name that before the special came out, before Whitney, you were working all of them? How many people at that level do you know now that work all three clubs? 
at that at that level yes. not not being like famous yes yeah it's tough yeah, it's, yeah <laughs> but yeah. you did it how did you do it i don't know um i never realized i never realized that or thought about that i just kind of uh you know when i saw you i would think about that every time really I, that's I would funny go the clubs i would say god this guy <laughs> must be an amazing politician that's hilarious i don't know i never i didn't think about that actually till now i i just kind of uh Dude, I I don't know. I I just I had to get on stage. I didn't want to do one show a night. That's not that wasn't enough. Now I I I'll do, if I do an hour, of course. But like I was doing like you know twelve minute spots. So I'd be like, I gotta do you know, I gotta do more. So I'd go and I'd just wait. I'd wait and I'd be like, if you can get me up. And eventually that just turned into me being in the rotation. You know, the comedy store was the first one that really gave me real time and love. And uh, you know. Jamie Masada and then and then the improv and Jamie Masada the laugh, laugh factory. factory. Laugh factory. And uh it just I don't know. I just I I don't know. I just kinda wanted to do it so badly. And not to say that other guys don't, but I just I, I don't I don't have any enemies, you know what I mean? I have maybe people rub people the wrong way. I just I kinda like people generally, you know? And maybe that maybe they Maybe that, maybe they like that. I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. Talk about, if you will, because each one of these clubs has a distinctive vibe. Yeah. And I've talked about it before. It is know, a distinct uh, vibe. The, the comedy store is a dark vibe. Totally. It's the persona that I talked about with you that I see sometimes yeah. when you're in your head. Yeah. The Laugh Factory wants to be the light yeah. even though you walk in the club it's bright yeah. it's like they want to be some kind of beautiful club slash theater showroomy kind yeah. of place absolutely and the improv is kind of a place that literally says to themselves oh well there's somebody banned from the laugh factory well, that's good for us <laughs> and they they are able to take alternative artists but also artists yeah. that are more light and they mix them all yeah. together, and they they're they're a great business model where they're like, hey, let those two fight over everything, right, and right, we'll right. just be able to work with everybody. Right. And ha- do your, does your act change from club to club, or is it ex- the exact same mm. way you perform it in each club? It doesn't change, but uh, it does feel like if you're going to go for not that you know the material changes, but if you're going to go. I know if I'm on stage at the comedy store, I can get more aggressive if I want. Like, uh, that's not necessarily true at the Laugh Factory, you know? Um, the comedy store would appreciate you saying to the audience, like, fuck you guys, you know? But, but as a, you know, as a joke, obviously, but the Laugh Factory, people were like, wait a minute, you know? And, uh, so the act doesn't change, but you ride it out, you know? It's like in the, in the comedy store, you you could do that. Ahmed Ahmed always told me, always said to the, the comedy store. He used a good word for it. Is is like the most dangerous club, and it sounds kind of pretentious first of all, but it, like right away. But then you think about it, and like when you're on stage at the comedy store, you feel like if somebody threw a chair at you, that wouldn't be unbelievable. Like you, you'd kind of be get it. Like it feels like a place where you could get attacked on stage, and I've seen it happen. You know. Um, not to me, but you know, uh, the laugh factory that just feels like that would never happen, you know, uh, or the improv, but, um, not to say it hasn't, but it just feels that way. So the vibe of the comedy store 
does feel like if these walls could talk, uh, you know, uh, it feels like it's a, a brotherhood, sisterhood. Uh, Laugh Factory is a family as well, but it just, if you walk in the comedy store, you could be in a good mood. You walk in, you're like, oh, all right, what's the deal here? And you just sit down and <laughs> the mood, your mood shifts. You walk into a Laugh Factory, if you walk into the Laugh Factory and you're in a bad mood and you don't turn into a good mood, you're an asshole. <laughs> you're, you're like a piece of shit. Like you walk in and you're like, oh, wow, it's hard to not do that, you know? Um, and the improv is kind of a, you know, it's a little what you see is what you get. Some guy will go on, he'll bomb. So another guy will go on, he'll kill, <laughs> you know. And um, like you said, it's a great business model. I love the improv. Um, it just kind of feels more bar-like, you know what I mean? Where you can, where you sit down, you have food, you watch a show, and then there's the bar outside. And it, it, it feels social. You know, the Laugh Factory feels less social. Uh, and then comedy stores run by the inmates man like you know <laughs> i forget who said that somebody said run by the inmates but that's how it feels you said that when you were a young kid you had fear and you also felt like an outsider tell the audience the moment in this business when something happened and you went back home and you said i'm an insider now um i think that I don't think that that ever is supposed to happen if you're going to stay relevant on stage, you know? I think that you need to keep that part of you and um, and work that, you know? When you're on stage, you need to be able to come up with the, unpo the way you feel and the unpopular opinion, maybe, and express that in a funny way, you know? Otherwise, you're just going to be on stage talking about, you know, fluffy shit, you know, or like, uh, happy-go-lucky stuff that's like, you know, clouds and rainbow shit. It's like not gonna, you know, it's not it's not really gonna advance you, I feel like, as an artist or whatever, you know? And how is it, we've seen it so many times, people self-destruct when things start going well. But mm. you, you're just the opposite. It's almost like you're a better, stronger, wiser kinder version of your early self not that you were not that before but it's like you're not the kind of person that it appears like like i could sit across from certain people i've interviewed and i could say are you surprised that you're alive right now right 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 or when do you think you're gonna die right 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 you're the kind of guy who's you see the future and it's bright and you don't feel like the person that's going to self-destruct. But right. when you're in this situation, you're doing these shows, let's face it, there's women all over the place. They're everywhere. And before, it's just a passing thing. But now it's craziness. How, as an artist, do you deal with that and the people who are the bad influences that can take you down that path? Sort of like A. Whitney Brown, in my humble opinion, was one of the people who influenced Farley to get into a situation where he was doing the kind of hardcore stuff yeah. that led to his demise. Yeah. Um, look, I, I mean, well, first of all, I, I don't do drugs. I don't drink, you know, I never have. I just kind of like, I don't, I don't feel like I want to do that. So, so I never have to worry about that or at least in the next week, I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> uh, I'm not saying I'll never do that stuff, but I don't. And, um, this is all what you work for, you know? Like, this is all what 
is that's the way it's supposed to be. You're supposed to work hard, get things, and then be happy. It doesn't work like that for everybody. But I have a great family. I'm really lucky. My 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 friends are really supportive, and you know, they're just. I'm lucky, and I I I, I genuinely try to feel that as much as I can without um, taking it for granted, you know? My dad and my mom have been just so important in my life and and telling me things that, you know, my dad's in the business, so he kind of understands and he would say things that he's like, this might happen to you, you gotta, you know, and so I've just always kind of been aware of it and that with the real love that I have got from my parents and, and family and my brother and, you know, it just, I don't know, man. That and I don't. I don't really take it all that seriously. You know, it's like the show on Databoy could be gone tomorrow. I could have a text right now that says we got canceled. It could happen. So, whatever, man. As long as I can keep getting on stage and and make me laugh, then it's that's exactly what it is. It's me having a good time. And and look, that's not to say that sometimes I'm not depressed or sad or or alone in Dayton, Ohio in a hotel room thinking, what the fuck am I doing? But I, you know, I try to focus on the good things. And and, and if you try to focus on the good things long enough, you eventually just start focusing on the good things. Awesome. All right. Final round of six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names of people. Okay. And tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Might be a few sentences, might be a word, might be a story, whatever. Okay. Whitney Cummings. When I feel, uh, when I think about Whitney, when I think about Whitney Cummings, I genuinely have a feeling, which is not something that you say about a lot of people, but or that I can even say about a lot of people. But like, I've never had a sister, I've never understood that. But if if but if I could say she's my sister, like I just I, I love her so much in a very real. F- it feels like a family way. Like I, I, I would do anything for her, you know. And I just, um, I think she's such a talent. And like, I'm just lucky to just know somebody like that, it, regardless of being able to work with her, which is also great. I just, she's awesome. Bill Lawrence. That guy, I can't understand why he he has a superpower of. You should hate that guy. On paper, you should just. <laughs> Read all of his stats and then see a picture of him. He's handsome and you're like, oh, I'm, I have to hate that guy. But when you meet him, you just can't hate him. He's this so likable and it's not even annoying about that. You're like, oh, he's just great. He's just he's a family guy. He loves his family. He's good looking. He's successful as shit. It's just I think about like how you can be a guy like that and not be somebody that I that people hate is just a real inspiration and I think that that's great I I, I, I the guy's amazing dude and, and he keeps putting out content he's hilarious and he's just fun to be around Dave Chappelle to me Dave Chappelle is what every comedian and he's for years he's had this where it's like the dangerous vibe where you don't know what's going to happen at his show and he's just hilarious and there isn't a comedian that doesn't think he's funny do you know what i mean he walks in a room 
most of the time the attitude changes where you're like, oh, Chappelle's here. And it's, uh, that's, that's awesome. Like that is the definition to me of like awesome. Like he just, that's what every comedian I think strives for in their career as a comedian. Jim Jeffries. Um, Jim, Jim's one of those guys that starts with an unpopular opinion on stage. And, uh, I, you feel sometimes, which is what I admire the most, I think, about comedians. You feel an audience split when he says something. Uh, and and uh, uh, and it, it polarizes people. And then, he, I don't know if it's his goal, but I think it is the goal of a comedian, is to get people then on the same page humor-wise and realize that he's joking. Uh, is It's... Um, it's just really cool to watch when it's him doing that because he's he's one of the best at that. The Comedy Central roast. That's not my style of humor. Um, the guys who are great at it are they get me and I I I laugh at them. Like Jeff Ross is hilarious and the, the people who are really good at it, you know, Whitney, Natasha Leggero, uh, Geraldo. Um, I, it's it. I love making fun of my friends. It's one of my favorite things to do. I love getting made fun of and shit on by my friends. But it's so fucking weird to be on one of those roasts and talk shit to Shaq about Shaq. I I respect him, and in the back of my head, I'm like, oh, I don't want him to really think I I really feel these things. I don't really care about people saying things about me. It's fine. I I'm gonna be fine. I feel like you know maybe some of it will put a chink in my armor, but. Um, I don't really care care about that, but like it's just it doesn't it doesn't feel. Maybe it was the way it was shot, but it was it took like three hours the, the roast I did, and it just felt kind of I felt a little bit out of my element, but uh, I, you know glad to do it. It was fun. It was fun a fun experience to have had, uh, but yeah, I'm I, I, it's not my style of humor. As a side note to the audience, when Chris says it took three hours to film, and yeah. you're wondering, well, how come I only saw 44 minutes out of yeah. the hour with commercials? It's because what they do is they shoot, overshoot. Oh, Everybody yeah. does like 10 minutes, there 9 minutes, breaks. 7 minutes, breaks, and then they edit the comedian sets down to three minutes, yeah. so they look like they're crushing, yeah, yeah, yeah. when in actuality, in roast, most <laughs> people, only a third of their jokes really hit, and there are a select few that do really well for the whole 10 minutes. Right. But normally, uh, it's it's overshot so they can get yeah. the best jokes in. The late Robin Williams. Uh, I, um, I, I think that, uh, you know, when I think about him now, um, it just, uh, it's not, it's not bittersweet yet. You know, it's, um, to me, it's just, it, it, it really, it really rocked my world when he uh, when he took his life um it really uh it really affected me and it it still does and um i was such a fan of his not even just as a comedian as an actor um the fact that that the guy that makes us laugh the most can be in that much pain um it was just like a a, a thing that put things into perspective for me that like it's a real thing that that affects people you know you, you, you i had one conversation with robin williams so it's not like i knew him and that conversation was a a 30 minute long really sweet conversation where he was 
asking me about the comedy store now. And it was so cool. And I was like a little kid and I was like, I can't believe I'm talking to Robin Williams and he's asking me questions. Like, and it seemed like he gave his shit. And then a year later for that to have happened, um, where there was just no signs of it when I was having the conversation and not that, you know, you know, or you know, sometimes you don't know if somebody's going to do something like that, or it just really put things into perspective that, that there needs to be more done about that kind of, you know, people need help and, uh, it's a, it's an illness. And, um, when I think about Robin Williams now, it just, it, it feels, it feels like, it just feels like we lost a really great one to that. And that's such a shame. And I, I just wish we could have avoided it. And, uh, you know, I think down the years I'll be like, I'll look more about his work and just be like, wow, that was really special to me. But it just, it just really still kind of affects me. Yeah. I think it affects, uh, all of us. It's yeah. just hard to imagine. Okay. Your proudest moment in show business. Uh, my proudest moment in show, the first one that comes to mind is, um, one that right jumps out at me is, uh, the one where I, uh, I was able to, you know, Comedy Central said, we're going to let, we want you to do your, we're going to offer you your first hour special. And who do you want to direct it? And it was up to me. And I got to hire my dad. That was that was the first one that I think of. It was a complete. If there was a symbol of, okay, now, now you. Now you are the man in the family. Do you know what I mean? I don't. Not that that's what that means, but it, it's a symbolic thing of like, oh, I, I, oh that, oh, wow, that's cool. You know, it, it just really was the symbolic moment for me in my career. It was like the hour special and then having my dad direct it and then being able to collaborate with him on how I want it to look and feel and then working with him on it in Louisiana when we shot it in New Orleans. It was just, I was a pig in shit, man. I was so happy. And then I did it again on Incorrigible. I was like, you want to do it again? And he was like, yeah. It's just so fun, man. That's That's fantastic. Yeah. Your biggest disappointment in show business and what you did after the defeat of the disappointment to rise above it and to take that and build upon it to a success. Um, defeat in show business, huh? I, uh, I can just think of like... I could just think of all of the times I bombed on stage where collectively put you in a shitty place. Like for the next 24 hours or as long as you can get until your next good set, you know, living with that in the back of your head and always feeling that bomb is, 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 is terrible. And, and you need to, for me, I just, I needed to have a good set. Sometimes it would last a week. I got that set wasn't good enough. Uh, but that, that affects me all the time. That affects me still. Even if I'm on a TV show, I'm still doing spots at night. So I'm carrying that through shooting. If I bomb, sometimes, or you know, you don't bomb, but you have weird sets and it just doesn't go well for sometimes seven days or a week. You know, you'd be like, I still don't have one that I really like. Um, 
getting that one, then then things are okay again. So I I would just take a you know as a, as a little those little defeats become the thing that that could that can defeat you. And I just feel like you got just got to keep on trying to trying to not try, just get back up on stage. You know. Last question: What advice do you have for the young performer who's thinking of quitting everything and going into what they believe in and having the kind of career that you've had not only as an actor a writer a stand-up but also as a producer how does somebody start with the kind of humble beginnings of trying to figure it all out and get to the kind of level of their career that you're at now uh, i see you, you just got to get on stage every single day that's what i always say like at least once a day at least once a night uh, if you want to be a stand-up comedian, then be a stand-up comedian. Um, my dad would say, uh, I fuck this quote up all the time, but he would just be like, I'm a director. He would say, I'm a director because I, I realized I was a director. You know, he's like Popeye's Popeye because he's fucking Popeye eats the spinach. And like, that's just who he is. He doesn't say, I think I'm Popeye. He's just fucking Popeye. <laughs> I'm definitely paraphrasing, but he did say fuck a few times. But that's, you know, just do it. Be that guy, you know? So get on stage every night and, and don't not do that if you want to be a comedian. Then just be one. Awesome. Awesome. This has been great. I hope you had fun. Yeah, absolutely. I know we got deep, but uh, no, I it's think cool. it's great for the audience to hear your story because you are an inspiration, whether you admit it or not or whether wow. you think it or not. The reason why you're doing this is not just to be successful and not just to have a great career. The reason you're doing it is because you're inspiring a lot of people, and I hope you know that, and I'm very grateful that you came today. Uh, thank thanks, you. Barry. I'm happy to be here, so thank you. They say it's glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders, walk you to fame. You'll get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going for. Life is for the dreamers, they have all to gain. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.